Good morning. Welcome to those who are joining us in the Fellowship Hall and online today. Today we are going to be going through the book of Amos, so if you have a Bible with you, you might find it helpful to follow along as we go through the book or a Bible app. Today as we walk through the big story of God's Word, we're in about 760 to 750 B.C., where both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, though separate, were prospering. But under the surface, things were not actually going as well as they seemed. During the time of the wilderness school, those years wandering before entering the promised land, God's people had learned what it meant to be people of this God. But then after decades of prosperity, the center of the people's focus had slowly been pulled by the surrounding pagan cultures away from God's call to live loving God and loving neighbor to a self-centered focus instead, with just a nod toward appeasing God or other little g-gods as a kind of religious duty completely removed from the rest of life. They had forgotten what belonging to this God meant about who they were and whose they were. And as a result, God thought it only fair to warn them that very soon he would be leading them into a full-system reboot, They'd be sent into exile where they would all start over with the remedial class, Wilderness School 2.0, to try to learn all over again what it means to be the relational people of the great I Am, blessed to be a vehicle of blessing in his name so that the world would know him, his character, his heart through his people. But in case anyone might be open to testing out of this course, God sent prophets to show the people where they were missing the point. But if you know much about the Bible, you know that stories where people actually listen to the prophets and change are very, very rare. <laughs> Most prophets end up having things pretty rough. And so in Amos, God shoulder-tapped a guy who was already pretty rough to do the job. In seminary, my professor pointed out that most of the prophetic books were written about men who had been shaped for years for this calling. Most of them had what were considered prophetic credentials. They had sat under the right teachers. They had done their time with other prophets. Ezekiel was called a priest, as was Jeremiah. Others, like Isaiah or Zephaniah, are called son of someone, indicating the long line of prophets that they hail from. Some are just called the prophet, like Zechariah or Malachi. But most of the books start by saying something like, these are the words of the prophet of this family, of these credentials, of this respected place in history. But how does this book start? The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, with a vision he saw. Here's the thing you got to know about Amos from the get-go. He is the hick among prophets. He is not a career prophet. He's a shepherd by trade. He's a keeper Good of morning. trees. That's what his life has been about. And as such, he has no pride wrapped up in the development of his prophetic voice. All he knows is God told him to say something, so he's going to say it. And after he does, he's just going to drop the mic and walk away from this whole prophet gig and get back to work. He's the one-hit wonder of prophets, Amos. Can you picture him? This is a working man of deep faith who God tells to speak a message, so he does. 
And Amos starts by thrilling the Israelites by thundering off a scathing word of judgment from God on their neighbors. He starts off, For the sins of Damascus, for what they did to Gilead, God will hold them accountable. And you can imagine the crowd responding, Yeah, down with Damascus. And for the sins of Gaza and Tyre, who sold whole communities of people into slavery, God sees your sin and he will hold you accountable. Yeah, they deserve what they get. And Amos thunders on, for the sins of Edom, who slaughtered innocent people out of pure unchecked rage, God's rage will fall on them. And for the sins of Ammon, so greedy to expand borders, that innocent civilians who stood in the way were slaughtered. God will send that king into exile himself, and he will have no land of his own at all. Yeah, preach, Amos. And for the sins of Judah. Wait, what? Judah? Isn't that where Amos is from? Because they have rejected the law of the Lord, because they've been led astray by false gods, God will send fire on Judah. Wait a minute, wait a minute. And for the sins of Israel. Hold up, us? Yes, you. Not so much fun now, is it? <laughs> now Amos has their full attention. And so far, this has only taken us up to chapter 2. The whole rest of the book, all the way through the end of chapter 9, is Amos reading them the riot act, not about other people's sins, but about theirs. We already covered how bad everyone else is, people. I already told you God sees their sins and how he plans to address them. So let's not waste any more time trying to point fingers and deflect because now it's time to look at your hearts, people. Not a bad oratory technique for a shepherd, is it? So what exactly are the issues that Amos is dredging up about what Israel had been doing? They're all issues of justice. They're all about how they had been treating people. How the love of, for this God needs to be reflected in our care of people. And they had drifted very far away from reflecting God's heart in their care of people. In one very stark example from Amos, as part of idol worship, pagan temples hosted prostitution. And what was happening was when poor families got into debt, the Israelite men called in those families' debts by having them sell their women and children into prostitution at the pagan temples. And then to make it even worse, generations of their same Israelite family then used the services there. In the same act, showing themselves unfaithful to God by engaging in pagan temple practices, unfaithful to their spouses by engaging in prostitution, and actively participating in the victimization of the lives of neighbors they were supposed to be blessing, then justifying their actions by the excuse of the debt. And Amos says God's response to this is, oh, no, you don't. Not if you're going to call yourselves my people, you don't. Because though you were in my debt, still I have done the work to save and help and sustain and bless you. Once upon a time, you agreed to be my people and walk in my ways, and now you're doing the opposite of that, clearly not loving me, not loving your neighbor while you still claim my name. But the world you're building is not one of my mercy and justice. You're creating despair and anger and hopelessness, so now I'm going to withdraw my hand, and I'm going to let you see what results will grow out of the kind of world you are creating. 
And so God lets his people feel the consequences. And things blow up. But all through chapter 5, through all the listing of those consequences over and over again, again, God keeps imploring his people to take the way out. Seek me and live. In Amos 5.14, God says, Seek good, not evil, so that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. See, God is asking for true humility, not religiosity. Religious action is how the pagan world thought about what God's wanted, to get paid off by my religious attention and flattery, and then when I've paid the toll, then I can do whatever I want to whoever I want. But God couldn't care less about flattery. In fact, he vehemently rejects it. In Amos 5.21, God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. It's not that God didn't want people to practice these ways of worship when they were actual expressions of love or gratitude from a person's heart, then they were beautiful. But God knows the heart. And assuming that God's passion for those who were being treated without mercy could be turned off by people paying him a bribe to look the other way, that just adds insult to injury. God is saying, that is no worship of mine. And if you think it is, you don't know me at all. Our God is a God of justice. He cares about people. And when we do too, he sees that as our act of truest worship. Those who love this God will also love people in word and in action because that is how he is honored. It's how who he is becomes known in the world. Amos, as a shepherd, knows if you abuse the sheep, if you don't care for their hurts, the herd won't thrive long. Amos knows if you harvest all the fruit now and you don't plan for the needs of trees to come, the orchard won't thrive. And maybe that's why God chose common sense Amos to give this message. In chapter 7, Amos pleads to God to spare them from the worst of these consequences for the sake of seeding the future. And God agrees. But then Amos is opposed by Amaziah, one of the yes-men to the king, who doesn't want to hear this, you're headed for exile talk. And Amaziah scolds him in 7.13, don't prophesy anymore at Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. We have the political power and the religious authority here, Amos. And in verse 14 through 16a, Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord, Yahweh, the I Am, took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. Basically, Amos is saying, You're right. You have all the earthly, political, and religious clout. I'm just a farmer. All I have is God Almighty the ancient of days, the one who was and is and is to come. So tell you what, I'm going to tell you what he says, and you do with that what you will, your choice. 
And he tells a vision where God showed him a basket of ripe fruit, revealing the time is ripe. God will now address the cheating of the poor, the unjust scales, the abuses of the vulnerable, the worshiping of human idols instead of God. And in chapter 9, 9, God says, For I will give the command, and I will shake the people of Israel among the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve. Exile is coming Enrollment for Wilderness School 2.0 is now open, and this is why you've got a lot to relearn about being God's people in the world. But remember, discipline is not condemnation. It's redirection for the sake of a better hope and a better future. And that's what Amos is given to speak at the end of his message. This is a necessary time out. Redirection is needed. But eventually there will be a new day. In Amos 9, 11 through 12, In that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. I will rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who will do these things. Did you catch that? All the nations that bear my name. God will use even this exile to seed a harvest of new hearts to know him. And true to who he is, even out of this darkness, the Lord will bring a new light. And having given this message, Amos goes back home. And eventually his words did prove true, both in the exile and in the scattering of God's people, and eventually in the humbled return in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah into the rebuilding of the temple. In exile, they cried out to God. They remembered who he is. They returned to him, and he returned them. Until, as human nature has shown, we see the cycle beginning all over again, generations later, now with the influence of Rome and resulting in the same retreating into religiosity of the Pharisees, practicing the letter of the law without seeing the heart of the one they're called to represent. But this time, instead of sending an Amos, God sends John the Baptist. This time, repent and prepare not to be sent into exile. This time, repent and prepare the way for your God, because he is coming to you to show you what he means when he says, love God and love neighbor, because apparently you're not going to get it until you see Jesus live it. In Jesus, God shows us, this is what I mean, people. Follow him. Imitate him. How does he honor my word with both truth and grace? How does he love Zacchaeus into seeing he doesn't want to steal from people anymore? How does he challenge the religious and his own disciples around their practices to see whether they're bringing to people to the needed mercy of God or keeping them away from it? How are we loving God and people in the Jesus way? Because that is our God's way. The thing about Amos's prophetic role, calling out sin, is he doesn't stick around to help people figure out how to respond to that message. He doesn't actually wade into the real work of heart change. And the truth is, life change doesn't come from condemnation, as we see from almost all prophetic stories. What makes all the difference is what comes after that. 
hope. The presenting of a vision of a new reality of a better option, a better future, a new hope, a new life that can actually be found for you and what God wants for you instead. In truth, Amos's prophetic warning didn't change the people. Exile changed them. Only when they were at the end of their rope, only when they knew they needed something better, something more than themselves, only then were they humble enough to reach out for God and to listen to what he had to say about being his people. Only then were they ready to try life a different way. What God wanted, what God has always wanted, was for his people to let him work in them the kinds of blessings that could be worked into the world through them. He wanted justice to roll down like mighty streams from the heart of his people into the world as a reflection of his heart for people. And many times it has. Through generations of orphanages and hospitals and care centers and food centers in the Lord's name because Jesus told us that our God is honored when our love for him is shown in our love for people. But God just telling us, be good to each other, has never been enough, has it? Our human sin always gets in the way. But God knew for these streams to flow from us, he first needed to address the deep thirst in us. Because we have a deep thirst to be valued and respected, to be important and successful, to be loved and known and secure. And although from the beginning of time, God has told us he can and he will be the one who fills that thirst, still over and over again, we try to satisfy it by crushing and pressing others, stepping on them, making ourselves look taller in our own minds or others. But nothing we can ever do will satisfy that thirst. So instead, Jesus came to freely pour out his life us all to pay the price for our human need to be right by his righteousness that cost him everything to fulfill justice through his mercy to show us what we truly need must and can only come from him alone in john chapter 7 37 through 38, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Only he fills the thirst of the deepest needs of the human heart for forgiveness and grace and value and love and importance. And when we are satisfied, when we're at peace with those gifts being ours, undeserved, unshakable through the cross of Christ, that's when the overflow out of the heart becomes his blessing to the world through us. We are people who are blessed by God so that we can be people who pour out the blessing of God into the world. For justice to roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream, this is where it needs to be streaming from, from the living water of Jesus' saving grace for us and for the world, from his righteousness 
freely given because every other source will dry up sooner or later. Still, we can be so easily distracted from our focus by our anger at the injustices we see in others' actions, like Amos's crowd. But look at the sins of Edom and at Gaza and Tyre. And Amos reminds us, yes, that's disheartening. <laughs> the Lord sees them. He will deal with them. But what I'm asking about is you. The Lord says, you are my people. And when the world is looking for who I am, what are they seeing in you? You want to see a change in the world? Let me begin it in you. Will they see Jesus' mercy and love in you? And when the time comes that the ways of this broken world reveal themselves to be the empty vessels that they are, what will draw people to want to try life a different way? What will bring the thirsty souls to the well of Jesus' grace? They will seek him when they see that he is the source of something better, of true love for others that flows from his people, people who care about the needs of a broken world because God does. What does a food-packing event for Haiti mean? What do piles of diapers say about who God is. It's not about what we do or what we give. It really isn't. It's all about who we know our God to be. It's all about what reflects his heart for the world. It says the people who love and follow this God will be people who love people the best we can because he does. Amos was sent to convict and he convicts us still today. But Jesus came to save, and he still comes to save. Jesus is the source of a different way, a source of living water beyond all the empty wells of our raspy attempts to grasp meaning and power in our own righteousness. All who are thirsty for meaning, for love, for value, for grace, come to Jesus He's the only source that will never run dry. And because Jesus fills us with his love, our lives can become vessels of that grace for a thirsty world. So this morning, as you remember who you are and whose you are, beloved, I'd like you to invite the Lord to show you how he is calling you to show the world his love through you. And I'd like to invite you this morning, as you leave this service, to go over to those pallets of food that we packed yesterday and just pray over them. Maybe place a hand on them to pray a prayer of blessing for all the children who will receive those meals, that they may know the love of Jesus for them, that they may be filled and know that there are people in the world who care about them because God cares about them. That in this one small way this week, justice may roll down like a mighty stream, showing the love of the one who gave up his life to feed all of us with his eternal grace. May they know we are Christians by our love. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.